The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Thanks for downloading the July podcast. This month we'll be looking at some of the school's archive material, charting healthcare in areas of conflict since the First World War. In the collection we have army orders saying only use sterilised sands. How the school is at the forefront of healthcare research in conflict zones today. In terms of conducting research in these settings, clearly there's a hierarchy and the first and foremost need is saving lives. And we'll also hear about new research that suggests that a little light drinking isn't as good for your heart as was once thought. The findings of our study suggest that whatever your level of consumption, it's always better to reduce that consumption. August 2014 marks the 100th anniversary of the start of the First World War. To commemorate this event, the school has put together an exhibition to show how health professionals have worked to improve health in areas of conflict over the past century. We sent writer Lucy Hawking, whose grandfather, Dr Frank Hawking, was a doctor of tropical medicine at the school, for a sneak preview. She spoke to archivists Claire Frankland and Victoria Craner to find out what archive materials they'd selected for the exhibition. We've come up with a title, Improving Health in Wartime. So we've started with the First World War, but then we have material on the Second World War and then also current conflicts. From my perspective, I've done lots of work on Sir Ronald Ross. So he was the discoverer of the mosquito transmission of malaria and the first Briton to be awarded the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1902. And he made quite a large contribution to the war effort. So we started with his papers. We have a collection of over 20,000 items relating to him. He was appointed consulting physician to the Indian hospitals in Britain. So this was a surprise to me. So those Indian troops who came to Britain were treated in four hospitals in the south of England, including the Brighton Pavilion, which was turned into a hospital for Indian soldiers. And one of the nicest pieces that I like is he's writing a letter complaining about the, the locals staring at the Indians in the hospital grounds and he wants a fence put up because he thinks that they shouldn't be treated like wild beasts because they've made such a contribution to the war effort. Ross went to Alexandria in Egypt in 1915 and um, was working on dysentery. So when he was in Alexandria, he he found out from him and colleagues later on that they were cleaning kitchen utensils and presumably some surgical utensils in sand. And then there was unsterilised sand and then they found out there was water-sewed parasites and horrible diseases kind of live in the sand so he was kind of saying you know and then in the collection we have army orders saying only use sterilized sands my um, my own grandfather was at the school um, all his working life he was a doctor of tropical medicine his name is dr frank hawking okay. my grandfather was actually when he heard about the outbreak of the second world war he was on the lawn at the british embassy in leopoldville which is now kinshasa in what was then belgian congo and he realised that he had specialist expertise as a medic, as a, a medic, medical tropical medicine. And so he did a sort of heroic one-man journey all the way back to the UK in order to enlist, um, thinking he would go back to fight. But then he was redirected because they said he was too valuable. So he went to the laboratories in Mill Hill and okay. spent the war there and did a lot of work on malaria and then later yeah. on on Bill Hart's here. Mm. Well, certainly my grandfather was a very independent-minded adventurer who didn't want to be told what to do by anybody. And I always thought that was probably one of the reasons why tropical medicine was so appealing to mm. him because it offered the opportunity to do all this research, to travel, to be quite solitary in his working mm-hmm. pattern, but to amass a huge amount of information yeah. that he could then come up with yeah. um, I, that, that would generate ideas and theories. We also have stuff from the Second World War, and I'd, I'd say that very much carries on 
being the case because we have this big collection of nutrition material in the school and in the archives and a part of that is the internment camps in Singapore and Hong Kong and somebody who when he came back he worked at the school as a lecturer in the nutrition department he was actually interned in Stanley camp through the war from 1942 until 1945 and what's amazing is uh, that he as an internee he actually continued his research as a nutritionist because of course he was in this acute center of malnutrition and he uh, and he couldn't stop himself from doing research and he wrote lots of reports all through his internment about about nutritional standards and we've got some of that in the case so that's extraordinary when he left he wrote lots of papers about the effects of malnutrition on on internees. So but that's it's again absolutely extraordinary that yeah. he used that as an opportunity yeah. to do research on something yeah. that would have actually you could never have organised that experimentally because yeah. you no. could. I mean, you no. would never have been yeah. allowed to. Yeah. So that's again, you know, this sort of individual-minded, but but sort of wanting to wanting to help others all the time. And we also have stuff about the school itself in the Second World War and how the school remained in London all through the war. They were offered to move to Cambridge, but they stayed and they they stopped the the general courses and they ran these two-week intensive courses. Again, so, you know, like your grandfather Mm. needing to come back Mm. and be... They they were determined to stay open, Mm. even when, you know, there was bomb damage to the building and things, it stayed open. So these are some photos... And this shows someone called Lady Mary Simpson. And within the exhibition, we've got a small number of letters. So she designed some anti-mosquito headgear in 1917 that she was trying to get the War Office to order. And she writes quite a number of letters to Ross about this and trying to get him to support it. Are there any responses? Have you got any responses from Ross to her? There are some responses. Was he impressed Uh, or was he rather...? He was fairly impressed, but there is one saying that the committee, I'm not sure which committee it was, has decided to go with another sample, but some of her samples will be sent to the front. And then she writes a number of letters saying that the Pasteur Institute has ordered many of her designs of the headgear... And also she name drops quite a lot. So she mentions Colonel Balfour. She looks like an an Edwardian matron in her sort of beautiful hat and feathered jacket. Yes. Some of the material which we're currently getting digitised is um, relating to Arthur Conan Doyle. So he was a correspondent of Ross's. And there's some fascinating material. One really nice piece where Ross is going off to Alexandria and Conan Doyle says something like, Godspeed, um, please stay safe because... The world would not be the same without you on it. Very heartfelt. But then later in 1919, he was very involved in spiritualism and psychic matters, and he urges Ross to spend 1919 looking at psychic matters. And there's quite a curt reply from Ross saying, I do not have time to do this. It's a fascinating piece of history, especially at the moment when so much focus is on the First World War. It's, it's very interesting to have a look at the other theatres of war, like the East Africa conflict, and think of how people might have been involved in it and in different contexts, like as a doctor. So I, I, think, that's, I think that's fascinating. That was Lucy Hawking talking to Claire Franklin and Victoria Craner. The exhibition, Improving Health in Wartime, is at the school's Keppel Street building in London. You can also watch a slideshow showcasing some of the archive materials on the school's website, lshtm.ac.uk. 
Although the exhibition focuses on historic healthcare professionals and practice in war, the school is still very much at the forefront of contemporary research in conflict zones around the world today. Dr. Bayard Roberts is the director of the European Centre on Health of Societies in Transition at the school. His research includes health policies of countries in transition, such as conflict-affected states. He told us more about his work, which focuses on mental health and other non-communicable diseases. Well, I think overall the, the issue of, of conflict and post-conflict is still marginalised and neglected. So there's still ignorance globally around the importance of addressing public health aspects for conflict-affected civilian populations. That's people like refugees, internally displaced persons, and also those living in, in the middle of conflict, such as we're seeing today with Syria, Central Africa Republic, or indeed Iraq, Palestinian territories, um, but also those in post-conflict settings and how we, we can rebuild their health systems to make them better than they were before. So the whole issue still needs a lot more attention. I noticed from one of your papers that you have done some work around things that we might just call lifestyle factors in um, a peaceful society but take on a, a different resonance in, in conflict and post-conflict around heavy drinking and heavy smoking. And it seems to be implying that these are sort of become embedded as dangerous habits during a time when people are maybe just focusing on day-to-day -day survival, but then they don't stop them when the threat stops. Yes, so there certainly is a, is a risk of this. However, we, we just don't know, actually, because there's very little research that's been done on it. So there's lots of reasons why we should be worried about, for example, har harmful health behaviours, such as harmful alcohol use, amongst conflict-affected populations, because there's key risk factors present, for example, comorbidity with mental disorders such as depression, which are often elevated during, uh, amongst people affected by conflict. The exposure to high levels of poverty, unemployment and so on, which are other known risk factors for harmful alcohol use. The challenge is that people haven't really measured it very much in order to have a, an informed opinion as to whether it's a risk factor or not amongst these populations. Can I just ask, how do you do research under such extreme conditions? And can you generalise from one conflict to another, or is every conflict so particular in itself that that data is only applicable to that one set of conditions? It's a very good question. I think we, we cannot really generalise from one conflict to another because they are so varied in terms of the severity of violence, the epidemiological profiles of the conflict-affected populations and the demographic socio-economic circumstances in which they take place. So we cannot generalise. However, there may be lessons that could be useful for other settings. In the absence of sufficient evidence in each context, we have to make some kind of um, inference to help understand how they may be useful in other contexts. And in terms of, of conducting research in these settings, clearly there's a, there's a hierarchy, and the first and foremost need is saving lives. And... Once the setting has stabilised to some extent where research is possible, uh, really it should be done as soon as possible. And that could be using ongoing information collection systems such as routine surveillance systems that should be set up. It can also be done using cross-sectional household surveys. And there's been very high-profile examples of research done in extremely difficult circumstances such as in Iraq and the Democratic Republic of Congo, even some coming out of Syria. So we can see the research is done. I think clearly there's logistical challenges as, as there are for doing any kind of operational activities in these settings. But I think a broader challenge is a lack of commitment and investment for public health research in these settings. 
when a conflict actually stops and you move into the post-conflict era, what period of time in general after the cessation of hostilities would you start to see this shift in patterns of communicable and non-communicable diseases? Yeah, I think the shift in the pattern from communicable to non-communicable disease is not really related to conflict itself and the post-conflict period. But what the post-conflict period does potentially represent is a rapid escalation in investment from bilateral and multilateral donors. But also as the economy stabilises and potentially improves, it represents an opening up of new markets which could also lead to the entrance of multinational, transnational companies. And clearly that may be very good and important for the economy. But some of these companies may not be good for the health of the population. They they, they may be bringing in products which could be very popular and they're a sign of Western civilization. but actually in health terms these may not be beneficial. Exactly. So we've seen examples of, for example, British-American tobacco now going into Burma. Clearly this has enormous risk for the health of the population in Burma. I don't know if it's accurate to say that Florence Nightingale would be an early example of a public health official, that indeed she was out in the field collecting information and treating people at the same time. Um, How far have we come since the days of Florence Nightingale? Well, I think definitely it's uh, an apt example of of, uh, public health research in conflict zones. She was you know, one of the great public health researchers in these zones. How far have we come? Well, in many ways we've come an awful long way, but it's still a relatively young field and it's evolving and developing all the time. But it's, and there's some wonderful work that's taken place and really crucial work and amazing work by humanitarian agencies. But there's plenty more that we could do. And I think there's a great appetite for that at the moment. That was Dr. Bayard Roberts. You can hear an extended version of that interview at lshtm.ac.uk. And whilst visiting the school's podcast webpages, you can also download a podcast that Jack Milne has made about studying the school's East African Diploma in Tropical Medicine and Hygiene. In this, he investigates some of the barriers for African doctors carrying out research and asks whether research carried out by international doctors is a problem. Here's a short clip. I live in Africa. I see these diseases every day and someone from UK coming to tell me something which is in my country. You know, it's like someone outside your home come and tell you what's happening in your house. It's, it was a bit not good. The London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine podcast. Although the harmful effects of alcohol on conditions such as liver cirrhosis and cancers of the liver have been firmly established, there's always been uncertainty as to whether a little light to moderate alcohol consumption might be beneficial to the risk of coronary heart disease and stroke. A recent study by researchers from the school using new methodology has suggested otherwise. Dr Caroline Dale is joint first author on the paper and told us more. So previous observational, traditional epidemiological studies would have asked people questionnaire data about their alcohol consumption at baseline and then waited over many years to see the rates of of coronary heart disease depending on their baseline alcohol consumption. Our study is quite different in in, in the recent years. More and more studies have been able to genotype their data and that makes it possible to 
do a study design called Mendelian randomization. And that is the study design that, that we've applied in this study. So you're actually taking data from a number of studies mm -hmm. and looking at genetic information from that to determine whether people are heavy or light drinkers. Is, is that right? Sort of. So we, we've taken data from 56 epidemiological studies. And you're, you're right that it's all been genotyped. And we have information about a gene called ADH1B and a specific variant of that called RS1229984. And basically, we use that as a tool for their level of alcohol consumption instead of the alcohol consumption per se, according to the questionnaire. Everybody would have that gene, but some people will have the A version of it and some people will have the G version of it. And if you have the A version of it, it means that you're predisposed to drink a, a lower amount of, of alcohol. As simple as that? As, as simple as that, yeah. So, the, but obviously, we're talking on average. Just because you, it's not a genetic determinism that we're talking about. Just because you have that gene doesn't mean it will perfectly predict it. But on average, that in the population there will be a difference between the A carriers and the non-carriers in the amount of alcohol that they drink. So, as you say, fifty-six studies and. What's the population size across those studies? The 56 studies, across all of those, we've, we've been able to incorporate 260,000 individuals. In simple terms, you can equate a Mendelian randomization study to a randomized control trial. And because genes are randomly allocated from parents to offspring, and the fact that that process is independent of common confounding factors of traditional epidemiological studies like smoking and, and diet, it enables you to have two groups in the population that are effectively randomised. Therefore, if we have a gene variant which differs by level of alcohol consumption, we can follow those two groups up over time and, and look at their coronary heart disease rates. And what were the results from this study? The results of the study, we found that the A carriers were, on average, drinking 17% less alcohol, and they were also less likely to be binge drinkers, and they were more likely to be non-drinkers. In addition to that, in terms of our main results, so the coronary heart disease, we found that the lower drinking A carriers had a 10% lower odds of a coronary heart disease event. So this seems to contradict the observational studies, which unfortunately suggest that a little bit of drinking is, isn't a bad thing, might be a good thing. Mm -hmm. So what, going back to those original observational studies, what possible reasons might there have been for that? Is it just people who don't drink are just unhealthier anyway? Yeah, absolutely. So this is really important for, for understanding the, the, the niche of our study, if you like. So in an observational study, you have this problem that the non-drinkers who are used as the baseline, that group will contain people who may have reduced their alcohol consumption or, or quit consumption in response to becoming ill, perhaps from coronary heart disease. And therefore, if you like, that group of non-drinkers is, is effectively polluted by people that previously were drinkers and therefore the risk the coronary heart disease risk that they experience is not actually a true reflection of perhaps what the risk is really would be with non-drinking and so therefore in the rest in, in when you're comparing other groups to that baseline you're getting an artificial result in addition to that bias there's also another problem in that the light to moderate drinkers will will differ from other people in many other respects other than just their light to moderate drinking and so they'll tend to be on average healthier 
people. So they, and we can see this in our data, we can see that they tend to do more physical activity, they tend to have healthier diets, and those things have all been shown to be beneficial for heart disease. So it's very difficult to disentangle, well, what is the beneficial effect? Is it really the light to moderate drinking or is it these other sort of associated behaviours that go along with it? So that's coronary events. What about other health effects of drinking? In our study, we focused on cardiovascular disease and we we looked at, um, in addition to coronary heart disease, we looked at stroke and, and diabetes events. And we looked at a range of biomarkers for cardiovascular health, so including markers of inflammation, blood pressure and markers of adiposity like BMI and waist circumference. And we found a consistent picture that the lower drinking A carriers had a preferential cardiovascular profile. So they also had lower BMI and they had lower blood pressure. And from a a personal point of view, has your results affected the way that you're going to change your own alcohol consumption? I guess the the findings of our study suggest that whatever your level of consumption, it's always better to to reduce that consumption. However, I think it's still a, a matter of individual choice. But if you do choose to drink, don't drink in the belief that it will be beneficial for your heart. That was Dr. Caroline Dale. Next month, we'll have more of the latest fascinating research and news from the school, including a look at how worried we should be about the growing resistance of antibiotics. Certain diseases that will be becoming untreatable, um, which is very scary. It's going back to sort of the Victorian time where, you know, a mild infection could prove fatal. As always, if you want any further information about any of the features on this month's podcast or news about future events at the school, you can visit us at lshtm.ac.uk where you can also listen to longer versions of the interviews. Thanks for listening.